in our Bible study in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning. But before we get started in 1 Corinthians 8, I want to let you know that I'm going to spring from our particular tradition here at Arcadia Valley Chapel. We've started in March of 2013 and we've taught Mark, we've taught Acts, and now we're in and then we went to Romans, and we've gone all the way through, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and then now we're in 1 Corinthians. But then, for the next four weeks, I'm going to teach the story of Jesus coming to this earth. I'm going to teach the Christmas story. And so many of you have heard it read. We've done it for the last two years on Christmas Eve. This year, I'm going to teach through it, because there's a lot to draw and glean from the people that God used to bring Jesus into the world. And so... Uh, you know, be, be excited about that and look forward to that and pray for me because I'm getting outside of my comfort zone. Uh, you know, I'm used to going straight through and we're going to leave 1 Corinthians and take a little break. So here we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And Paul started the book of 1 Corinthians by addressing that there was lots of divisions in that church. <coughs> they had all the gifts of the Spirit. They were a, a thriving church in a very dark culture. And yet... Inside of the church, there was all these problems going on, and those problems were threatening to basically take the church and blow it up from the inside out. Normally, when you think of a church collapsing, you're like, well, it's because it's in such a dark culture. But actually, the, the worst enemy of the church is the church itself. We're made up of a group of people that have been saved by God's grace, and we all too quickly forget that what began that work of us in the Spirit was Jesus saving us, forgiving us of our sinful lifestyles, and changing us from the inside out. And then we get to this place and we think, you know, I've arrived. Look at how great I am as a Christian. And we start to give the glory to ourselves, and then we start to measure ourselves against other Christians. And what that does is pride puffs up. Next thing you know, we're, we, all of our heads are too big for us to get near each other. We all think we're better than one another. And so Paul had to deflate their pride by sticking a pin in it and telling them the truth, like these divisions are caused because you guys think too highly of yourselves. You need to get off your throne and let the Lord be the head of the church, and he is. So after he dealt with some very specific issues we won't get in with today, then he changes the, the theme of the letter, goes from, Basically him rebuking them for the things causing divisions, him showing that there were some heart issues going on that were actually causing the symptoms they were seeing. And now he's turned the corner and last week we started in chapter 7, or a couple weeks ago we started in chapter 7, talking about the principles of marriage and he was answering their questions. They had questions about, like, what does it mean, you know, how should we carry out marriage? And what about those of us who are single? How are we supposed to live? And this week is going to address something that you and I have never dealt with before, but we're going to be able to draw some application from it. See, they had this issue, and he's going to address it in Romans, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 8, uh, verse 1. He says, Now concerning things offered to idols... Now, I don't know about you guys, but we don't have a whole lot of idol or pagan temples around here that we know of, right? Um, we don't have anybody sacrificing animals in the middle of the woods somewhere in a temple. Uh, but what they had in the Corinthian church was they had lots of pagan altars and pagan worship centers where we've already talked about there were pagan places where they could go and worship. I put it in big quotations because it wasn't really worship to our God. It was worship to their God, the God of fertility. And they would do it by 
taking money, going to the temple, and purchasing time with a woman who was a priestess, big quotes again, and laying with her physically in order to worship their God. Now, you can see where lots of cultures will be like, hey, that's the God I want to worship right there. But what God says is we're different than that. We do not practice sexual immorality. That is not the way we worship our God. As a matter of fact, that's against him completely because he made marriage for one man and one wife to be together forever till the other, till one of them dies, till death do us part. And so he addressed that. But there were also pagan temples where they go and worship and they would actually give offerings to their gods like the Israelites did. They would take an animal and they would sacrifice it. Now in the pagan temples, they would do three things with the meat. Because you sacrifice the animal, you burn a portion of it, and that's offered up to your God. And then a portion actually goes to the priest who is in the temple to provide for his needs of eating. And then there's a third part that goes, and it basically goes back to the person who made the offering. The idea is they're eating the offering with their God. Fellowship, kind of like we have. So, the problem with this is sometimes the priest, he wouldn't need the meat. There was enough people making sacrifices. He had his needs met. And so they would take whatever meat was left over and they would sell it in the marketplace. But because it had been sacrificed to an idol, it was cheaper. So instead of going to the Walmarts and getting your meat or going to Rubles Meat Market down the road, you'd go to Aldi. Now, this isn't the case in our culture, but you would go to the marketplace where it was a lot cheaper. You could make your money go a lot farther if you just buy this meat that was sacrificed to an idol because it was cheaper to buy that because it had already, in a way, been used. And so they would say, hey, you know, we can just go down to the marketplace, buy this. It, it's sacrificed to an idol, but we know as Christians that this really isn't anything. They're sacrificing it to a block of wood or a melted cast piece of silver. So that doesn't really mean anything. It doesn't change the meat at all. We can get a discount. Because these people are worshiping idols, I'm in. I'm going to go buy that thing. I can save money. And we do that, right? We, we, if we can save money in some way, we get the coupon out, or we do anything we can to save some money. And it's smart. We can be good stewards of God's money. But the problem was, there were people that were in the Corinthian church who were saved, but they used to be pagan idol worshipers. And so for them to go near the temple at all, completely stumbled them because that was a sign of their past life. That's something that for them, they had to make a distance between right and wrong. They had to walk away from that thing because for so long they were the ones making the sacrifices. And so Paul's saying here, concerning things offered to idols, verse one, we know that we have all knowledge. He says, we know that these things that were offered to idols, there's nothing to them. If anything, there's some sort of demonic thing behind it, but it doesn't change the meat. So we know that we can eat this and our consciences can be clean because it doesn't really matter. He says, but knowledge puffs up and love edifies. Knowledge is like blowing air into a bubble, into soap, and it blows up a big bubble. It puffs up, makes us heady. You know, you ever meet somebody that just got out of college? especially guys like me, engineers, you know, they get out of college and they tell you how much they know. Well, you take an engineer and you put them in a shop with somebody who actually works on stuff and knows how things work and how, things that do work and things that don't work. You know, he talks to the mechanic. The mechanic goes, you're a fool. 
you can design that all you want, but it's going to break because he's tried to do it before or he's made it and had to work on it his whole life. So knowledge without application, it just puffs you up. You can just prove to other people you know stuff. But what he says is there's a contrast between knowledge and love. Knowledge blows an air bubble. It makes your head big. Love edifies. Now, what does edify mean? Well, if I was sitting in the Catholic Church down the road that has the big beams in the top of it, it's got these big, you can see the structure that holds up the roof. It's made out of wood, and you can see the trusses. So if you added boards to those trusses, they would be edified. The word would mean strengthened. And so while knowledge puffs us up and makes us think we're better than other people, love strengthens people. And I heard one guy say this, knowledge blows a bubble, love builds a building. The body of Christ is the building. It's the way that God reveals himself to our culture. And the church is not a building so much as it is living stones. You all joined and knit together, building up this building that proclaims the glory of God. So if you got one person that's one of the bricks in the building, and they're full of knowledge, and they're puffed up, and they're different sizes than all the other bricks, all of a sudden the the building kind of gets shifty. It gets like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. It's going to knock over. But love edifies. It joins us together in solidarity. We give preference to one another. We see what might stumble a brother or a sister, and even though we have the freedom to do it, we say, you know what? I don't want to stumble so-and-so because I think they used to be an alcoholic. So I'm not going to let them see me sitting in the bar on Thursday night because if they walk by, they might be stumbled and they might think, hey, maybe I can just go back to that thing. It's not really that big a deal. But when alcohol used to control their life and you embolden them by practicing something you have the freedom to do, you might cause them to sin. And so I've kind of jumped ahead in the passage, but that's the main theme of this passage. He says in verse Two, if anyone thinks that he knows anything, the idea of knowledge, he knows nothing as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. And so he says in verse four, therefore, concerning the things, excuse me, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol really is nothing in the world and that there's no other God but one God. And that's the God that we worship. And then in verse five, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there was one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him. In other words, we were created for him. And there's one Lord Jesus Christ through whom are all things and through whom we have our living and being. We're alive because he's God and he's in control. Not one of us can control whether or not our heart beats. Now, when we're dying and we're on the operating table, somebody can take basically what I would call human jumper cables, charge them up and rub them together like they do on the TV shows and put it on each side of the heart. But that doctor doesn't know if that's going to work or not. It does work in times. And God has used that method to start people back up. He's given us enough wisdom to know that the the heart is electrically charged and that sometimes if you give it a little jolt, Sometimes it kind of wakes it back up and for whatever reason starts it again, but it's not a guarantee. 
God is the author of life. He's the creator of you and I, and he is the one holding our heartbeat in our hands. And that's a very basic thing. If our heart doesn't beat, we don't stay alive. If our lungs don't take in oxygen or take in uh, oxygen and put out carbon dioxide, that we don't stay alive. God has set those things in place. And so he says there that we have through whom are all things and through whom we live. He's just going back to the fact that Jesus Christ is not just some teacher, but that he's the God of all creation. He's the Lord of all. And yet he came to give us our salvation. Verse 7, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge. Not everybody knows that. We take for granted that everyone knows that Jesus is the creator and the author of life and he's the one who has bought salvation for our souls. He came to buy us back. John 3.17 says that God didn't come into the world to condemn us, but that through Jesus Christ we might be saved. We, a lot of people that don't know the Lord, they're like, you're just condemning me. You're trying to give me all these rules to follow that are just bumming me out. And the Lord, he's saying, no, no, this knowledge is not meant to bum you out. It's meant to set you free. Because when you realize that the fences that God has placed for us are really just (laughs) barriers that keep us from jumping off a cliff, you realize that he loves and cares for us. He says in verse seven, however, there is not in everyone that knowledge that Jesus did that, that he is the author of life. He is the sustainer of life. For some, continuing on, with consciousness of the idol, until now eat eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we better, nor if we do not eat are we worse. But beware, verse 9, lest somehow this liberty or this freedom of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. He says, we know that eating foods or not eating foods really doesn't change our status in the eyes of God. We know that. God has shown that to us. But there are those who used to be pagan idol worshipers that if they eat that food because they don't know that, they are worshiping that God. And so he says there, beware lest somehow you as Christians your freedom in Christ would cause somebody else to sin. Beware lest your freedom or your liberty become a stumbling block to those who are weak. Jesus said to his disciples and to those who were listening, he said, if you or anyone were to stumble one of these little ones, talking about those who are of childlike faith, it would be better for them if they had a millstone tied to them and they'd be thrown into the ocean. A millstone was a very heavy stone used to kind of roll over grain in order to break the shuck off so they could use the grain to make their bread. And so a millstone was this very heavy thing that they would have to have an oxen or somebody push it over the top. And so it was one of the weightiest and heaviest things they could think of in that day. And they knew what it was. They had them. They could probably see one while Jesus was talking about it. He said, if anyone stumbles a little children, a little child and causes them to stumble about what God is like, then it would be better for them in the eyes of God if, if basically they had one of those millstones strapped to their back and they'd be thrown into the ocean, that they wouldn't even exist anymore. Because God's going to judge those who stumble little children. 
He's not just talking about children. We as dads, we as parents, we have the ability to either represent God in a wrong way or represent God in a right way to our children. Men, we have been given by, for whatever reason, God has entrusted it into us the ability to either completely stumble our kids or point them to Jesus in everything we do. And so it's a high calling to represent the Lord. We, as sons and daughters, we look to our parents in many ways, whether we like what they do or not, we become a lot like them. Just because that's from the very earliest stages of life, we look at them and we identify with them and we, we become like them. We want to be like them. They're our role models. It's a high calling. But here's the reality. God can change all that if you've, you've wasted a lot of years. You may have been one of those who have stumbled them forever. But now God, if he wants to do a new thing, he wants to use us as those who represent Christ to our children. And then we won't stumble them. They will, instead of stumbling on the stumbling block, they'll be pointed to the cornerstone. They will not be put to shame. But he says there, Food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, nor if we do not eat are we the worse. But beware lest somehow this freedom of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to the idols? And because of your knowledge that puffed you up, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? Shall the weak person, the person who is not able to see the difference between truth and darkness, shall he be emboldened to live in that because he sees you who know the truth, who call yourself a Christian doing something that will stumble them, shall he be emboldened to do the same, not knowing that you are practicing self-control. For instance, this was my stumbling block, so I'm not trying to project it on anyone else. Before I became a Christian, I was one of the Christians that said, I can do whatever I want, God save me. He's, and so for me, I went to engineering, engineering school where there were no girls, well, like one out of every ten was a girl. And most of the time, us guys, we'd get together and we would just drink all the time. Like that was our, that's where we got some sort of relaxation. But the reality is, we were just getting drunk all the time. I always told people, like, I don't get drunk, I just drink a lot. You know, but I was getting drunk. Now, I was telling people that I was a Christian, but I was really being filled with spirits all the time. I was misrepresenting the Lord. Now, in God's word, it doesn't say that you can't drink. It does tell certain people in leadership in the church, you're not to be a drinker of wine. You're not to be drunk. But to those who are believers, there's really no uh, abolition of drinking alcohol. Uh, Paul actually tells Timothy at one point, he says, I want you to drink a little alcohol with your water. That's because the water in those days was not purified. He was mixing something in. He had some stomach issues. And so Paul said, hey, add a little wine to your water so that you can, kind of like an antibiotic. But the reality is that there are many people among us in the churches, outside the churches, who struggle with alcoholism. It's a very real thing, especially this time of year. Here we go, Thanksgiving. One of the biggest nights of bar attendance is Thanksgiving night. Did you guys know that? It's, it's like, ah. Uh, 
I don't want to be around my family. Everything on TV says, hey, this is the time of year you get with your family. I can't stand my family. They can't stand me. We got problems. Going to the bar. And so that's where they hang out with their real family. A lot of people that go to bars, they say, well, I'm not religious. Yes, they are. They are faithful to their religion. They are faithful to where they find peace and hope. Now, they don't find it for very long because the next morning hurts. I remember vividly, okay? <laughs> when I still get sick, once in a while I get the, the flu or something, I'm like, man, at least I didn't earn this one, you know? I used to earn quite a bit of those. But Paul is saying here, maybe, maybe we don't have meat sacrificed to idols, but maybe we have other freedoms that we practice not knowing that we might be stumbling a brother or sister in Christ who struggles with that. In every congregation, there's somebody that used to be an alcoholic. Is our freedom that we're taking advantage of going, I'm not using it to drunkenness. Is it going to embolden somebody else that might have used to do that all the time? That's the question. So the question becomes, do you live your Christian life based on knowledge that puffs up or out of a love for your brethren that edifies and strengthens them? In Ephesians, he actually says, and, and your word indeed. I'm going to turn there real quick. In Ephesians chapter 5. Can't remember the verse. Ephesians 5 verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. And walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us as an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. He says in verse 8, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit in all is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. So he says, walk in wisdom, verse 15. See then that you walk circumspectly or soberly is the idea. Not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. And so he's just saying, walk in love with one another. First uh, Corinthians chapter 13, we know as the love chapter, and you always hear it read at weddings. But if you really pay attention to the context he's talking about, in the context of church, he's saying this is what love looks like. He says there, he says, love suffers long. The word means patient. Love is patient and is kind. It does not envy. It does not parade itself. It's not puffed up in knowledge. He says, it does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. Love's not looking to get its own rights. Um, it does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. Is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but it rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. So he's talking about the love that we have for the Lord. Because he first loved us, we love the Lord. It's not because we love him more than he loves us. It, he first loved us, and so because of that, in thanksgiving, we love him. And then as a result of that, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. 
And then he says this, he says, love your neighbor like you love yourself. If someone stumbles, you realize that you've probably done it to somebody else. Look for ways to bless people. Look for ways to interact with them in the ways that you wish they'd interact with you. And even if they don't change, continue to do so. Not because they might respond in love, but because (laughs) Jesus did it for you. Go and do likewise, he says. Anyway, so be careful of the things that you take advantage of your freedoms on, lest you embolden someone else to sin. Verse 11 of 1 Corinthians 8. And because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? He says, but when you thus sin against the brethren and wounded their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. So Paul says, rather than saying, I've got a right to do this, he says, I will give up meat. And now Paul's a meat lover. He's not a guy that's saying, hey, I only like vegetables and give me, you know, like he's not that guy. He's like, I love eating some meat. But if it's going to cause my brother or sister in Christ to be weakened in the faith rather than strengthened, I would rather not eat meat. And I have an example for this. There is a man by the name of Jason Havertape. I got to meet him just for one weekend. He's a missionary to Russia. Now in Russia, now that the Cold War is over, and, you know, but they've, they're still suffering the, the results of communism. And in many ways, they're still a very communistic country. I'm not going to talk about communism, but I'm going to talk about the effect of that is they, they have rations of food. And meat is not common. And when people do have meat, it's because they have lots and lots of money. They can't afford it. And so what they do is they have little rations and some people will have a little bit. Well, this man was living in Russia. His family was over there. He had two or three kids and his wife were living there and they, they would not eat meat while they were there because they did not want that church, the people that they had invested in and loved on them like Christ and started a church there, they didn't want them to be stumbled by it. Not because it was sacrificed to idols, but because the people they had in their church were all very, very poor. So to eat meat in front of them might stumble them and make them think, hey, these guys are just over here because they make lots of money as a pastor and a pastor's wife. And so he said, basically what Paul said here in the end, he said, therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, I say that, and he came to Missouri, and we got to hang out with him for the weekend, and we, people had him over for meals and stuff. And while he was here, one of my buddies, the guy that led me to the Lord, he actually had him over, and his favorite thing to do was to grill meat. And so Dave, he got some steaks, but he didn't get Jason some steaks. He got like the biggest steaks I had literally ever seen, like inch and a half to two inch cuts. He got them special. He cooked them on the grill, made them just the way he liked them, and we put them on the plate. Now Jason sits down, and he didn't say, I will not eat it because I don't want to stumble my brothers, because he was also worried about stumbling us. Jesus told his disciples, if somebody gives you some food, eat the thing in thanksgiving, whether it's something you think you should be eating or not, because they've given it to you to be a blessing. And so there he is, sitting by this big chunk of meat, probably hadn't had meat in years, and he starts to cut it up. And they start talking to him. They're like, hey, you know, I, I know there's not much meat in, in Russia, so here you go. Here's some meat. And he was like, yeah. And he wasn't trying to stumble us. He was just letting us know, like, well, 
I, don't, I actually don't even eat meat there because it will stumble people. And, he, and of course, we're like, oh, we just stumbled you. Here we are. You know, and he was very gracious. And he was just sharing with us, you know. In that culture, people just don't have a lot. As a matter of fact, one of the ministries that my wife and I support is called Far Reaching Ministries. Primarily, they're in Africa. And they're fighting with the Sudanese. And they actually train up uh, pastors or uh, chaplains to go out to the field with these Muslims who are fighting for the Sudanese government. And when they're out there fighting and they need prayer, these men will go out there as chaplains and they'll pray over the battle. But that's just a side note. They also, Far Reaching Ministries, has a ministry in Russia where they provide and they, they send funds over there and then they buy up a bunch of potatoes because that's also a commodity. But it's also something like when you're living in a country that's really close to Siberia and it's cold, you need lots of calories to stay warm and so they eat potatoes. And so every year they just they gain money and then they send it over to Russia to provide potatoes for them. So just a side note, I don't even know why I'm on that tangent. But my point is, is that Paul, his heart was never to say, hey, I'm going to do this and no matter, I don't care what other people think. And we're from a country where we say, I don't care what other people think, I'm going to do whatever I want. For instance, and this is a local issue and I'm not trying to cause division, but for instance, my heart is uh, about slavery. Now, slavery's been gone for years, right? But since slavery, what have we had? Racism. Now, I don't agree with the way certain things happen. I don't agree with burning down your community because somebody was shot. But that's beside the point. Here we live in a culture where we all say, I have my rights to do whatever I want, and I don't care who I step on. But my heart as a pastor and as a Christian is that if I do something that causes someone else not to see Jesus in me, then it's sin to me. And for me... I will never fly a rebel flag, not because I think of states' rights or it's not really about slavery. It's not about that to me. If I can't lead a black man to the Lord because I'm flying colors, then, then I won't fly those colors. Does that make sense? You know, I want them to know that I love them more than my own rights. I want them to know that Jesus came to save the sick and the hurting and the lost from every nation and every tribe and every tongue. Jesus isn't a white God, by the way. He's an Israeli man. He's a Jew. He was Jewish. He had probably more than likely had a larger nose and he had darker skin and, and he didn't look like the Irish guy that we see in most churches on the painting. You know, he came to save all those of mankind. Every man and woman was made in his image. They reflect the very qualities and the character of God. And what God desires to do is to seek and to save that which is lost. So my rights are not import, more important to me than their salvation. That's why most of the time you will never hear me get political. I won't go and tell everybody what my political views are. It's not because I don't have them. It's because I want you guys to know that Jesus is more important than my political views. And I, my desire is that you would fall in love with Jesus and then you would vote likewise. I don't believe that Jesus is a Democrat. I don't believe that he's a Republican. I think Jesus is God and he's the king of all. And that... More than likely, he doesn't lay on either side. I think there are things that he honors. Human life, you know, uh, the right to, to be able to, for human life and all that kind of stuff. But I'm not a big fan of, of preaching from the pulpit what my uh, political views are. Because to me, I might stumble somebody and they won't come to Jesus because I'm too political. And so, uh, 
Paul was in the same manner. He says, if food or if anything makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. And his example was lived out in that. Paul was a pastor. He led that church. He started it and then he left it to someone else. But before he did, he was there with them for 18 months. And you know what he never did? He never took a salary. He would work all night long making tents to provide for himself because to them, money was also an idol. Even though they didn't worship to it, money was something that was very important to them. So rather than stumble them by taking an offering up every week, he said, you know what? I'll just make tents. I'll work all night. I'll get up in the morning and then I'll work all day sharing the truth with people. Because even to him, that was more important that they wouldn't be stumbled by him taking their money. Now, Paul also said, it's not unlawful for a pastor or someone who is a leader of a church to take a salary because a workman is worthy of his wages. He said, no man muzzles an ox who treads out the grain. The ox needs to be strengthened. He needs to have his needs provided for to tread out the grain. And so that's a whole other thing. But he'll talk about that in chapter 9 when we get there at the beginning of the year. But next week we will study and we will look at Jesus, the Son of God, and how God decided to bring His Son to the world by humble beginnings. So let's pray. Father, I thank You that You are a God who loves us enough to sacrifice. You left heaven. You gave up all Your rights as the heir to the throne. You gave up all Your position. You left the best place in the world to come down here amongst sin and injustice and pain and sorrow and grief. But you did it because you love us. And so, Lord, in likewise manner, help us to imitate you, to give up our rights, our freedoms as we see them, as you call us to do so, so that others might see the love that the Father has for them and be one by our kindness, Lord, by our willingness to to love them until it costs us something. Lord, thank you for loving us enough to allow yourself to, to have to give cost. You didn't care about the cost. You were looking forward to what you were gonna do in our lives. The joy that was set before you was our very salvation and the way that you decided to manifest and glorify your son in this world. And so, Lord, help us to do likewise. In Jesus' name. Amen.